when you can get your eyes to be that engaged with someone else, your whole sense of being self-conscious disappears. It's like you don't feel awkward at all anymore simply because you're not thinking about yourself. It's just a matter of getting your attention so focused on something else. And then the beauty of this approach is that if you really are paying careful attention to someone else, you can contribute by just checking in with them. It's so easy. everybody. My name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now today, as we get closer and closer to Christmas, it's nearly here, we're going to go on a deep dive into the sticky subject of power, what it looks like, where it lives, and how we can access it deliberately and specifically to create more impact, choice, and authority in our lives. Sound like a, sound like a big call? We're going to give it our best shot. If there are two questions that I think have followed me throughout my career when I was thinking about this episode and planning for this episode, it would be these. Number one. How do you create influence? Is there a blueprint to owning your space in an industry or a room or a conversation in such a way that you become the undisputed trusted authority? And question number two, is it possible to communicate with power and certainty without running the risk of being perceived as cold, aggressive or unapproachable? Now, this conversation, today's conversation, answers both of those questions. My guest today is Deborah Gruenfeld, social psychologist, Stanford professor, in-demand keynote speaker, and author of Acting with Power, Why We Are More Powerful Than We Believe. Now, what I love about her book is that it really put to bed for me the story that there are two kinds of people in the world, those who have power and those who don't. Now, that's an idea that I've been butting up against for the past 20 years, but this just kind of was the final nail in the coffin. And the book itself instead comes to an eye-opening conclusion, and it is this, that we all have more power than we think. And if that is true, then success is not about how much power you have, but rather how you choose to use it. Now, in this conversation, we get into the weeds on that. We look at why in your next interaction or presentation, you have 100 milliseconds before we decide whether or not you are competent. 100 milliseconds. And what to do to make those count. Why most of us prepare for any big moment by focusing on what we want to say, the words we want to use, when only 7%, according to the science, of the impact that we make has anything to do with the words that we use. And instead, the other 93% is our body language of power. And we talk about how we move between playing high, which is a projection of authority, and playing low, a state where we're more connected and approachable in our being. And why the real power lies in our ability to move between those two places effortlessly, but more importantly, consciously. We talk about the key to gravitas and why the answer just might lie in the world of flamenco. Anybody who's been listening to the podcast for a while will know that that's a very secret theory slash conclusion of mine. 
We also go into our perceptions and behavior towards women in power and how body language is the most effective way to use power as a woman without the the negative assumptions that can often come along with taking a position of power. Now, these insights are incredible tools, not only for women, but for the men out there who you for who either manage, mentor or love any women in your life. These are insights you're going to want to pass on to those women. And finally, why being responsible for our state and our ability to change our state has nothing to do with being inauthentic or changing the entire essence of who we are, but instead it has everything to do with owning the fact that we have a choice in any moment about which aspects of ourselves we allow to show up. Now, as a quick point of reflection while you listen to this conversation, if 2021 is going to be anything, I think we can all pretty much agree it's going to be a year of uncertainty. And if history and politics have taught us anything, it's that during uncertain times, our natural inclination as human beings is often to avoid risk by seeking out those who communicate with power and with certainty. Basically, we gravitate naturally towards those we believe to be trusted authorities. So now, as we close down on 2020 or get close to that, it's the perfect time to get really curious about your current relationship with the word power. Where do you step into it? Where do you actively avoid it? Where do you overuse it? And where could you possibly start to share it? All of our choices live in awareness and believe me, our own personal power is no different. So on that note, sit back, stride on, steer carefully or just sip a cup of coffee and generally relax and enjoy my conversation with the literal powerhouse that is Deborah Gruenfeld. Welcome to the podcast, Deb Gruenfeld. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Julie. It's good. Do you know what? I'm doing more and more of these on, on Zoom, obviously, at the moment, and less and less, well, none face-to-face. And I'm actually really loving, I'm really loving the, the kind of virtual format at the moment and getting to see people's worlds. I love it too. You know, I think it's come as a big surprise to many of us, but from teaching, one of the big surprises for me is how intimate it feels. I actually think that for some reason, I don't know, it, it doesn't feel to me like we're separated at all. By physical space and time, you know, it's like you're, you're sort of very close to people. And like you said, you're in their home often. So yeah, I've, I've enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. And you, the, there's something different about the energy and what people, just something as simple, what people wear. Yeah, yeah that's you true. You just go straight into kind of connected conversation rather than the barriers that we have of location mm-hmm. and, and outfit and, yeah. and all the symbolisms of, of, of power, which yes. is a great segue into where Absolutely. we're going to go today. So I wanted to kick off. There's a question that I'm enjoying asking at the moment. I usually use the beginning of the podcast just to run a variety of social experiments that I have in my brain at the time. And the one that I have at the moment is that interesting people and people who drive important conversations usually have a radar for really interesting and important ideas. I just wanted to ask you, what's the, what's the most influential idea? What's the game changer idea that you've come across recently that's kind of captivated your attention? 
Wow, that's a great question. And I'm always searching for them. So let me see if I can dig through um, the pile in my head. You know, one of the topics that interests me a lot is the topic of authenticity. And um, it interests me a lot because I'm a bit of a skeptic about it, as you probably know from reading my book, maybe not in ways that would be fully transparent or fully obvious, or even as offensive as that sounds. But I recently read that somebody pointed out that um, just because you you feel authentic does not mean that you are coming across authentic. And that's really important from my point of view. So, you know, just because I think the point is, which I find so useful to keep in mind when you're thinking about things like having influence, just because you're doing something that feels natural to you doesn't mean that you're coming across either natural or as yourself. So the the best example I can think of is that one of the things I have noticed from coaching people over the years is that when we feel anxious, that's an authentic feeling. And when we appear anxious, that's authentic, but it makes other people feel like we're not fully there or like we're not fully committed and it makes other people feel anxious in our presence. So do you know what I mean? It's like there's, I think it's really important for people to get that, you know, being authentic and being present is not the same as just doing what comes naturally or trying to be, you know, the same version of yourself all the time. You know, that's just perfect timing for me because I did a video just recently and had a conversation just yesterday on how I feel about the word authentic. And for me, it's never really sat well, this, this kind of word authentic and, and for different reasons, but related reasons, you know, for me, how you're feeling, how you're authentically feeling may or may not be appropriate for the moment. You know, you may, you may be feeling exhausted. You may be feeling over it for whatever reason, you may be feeling angry for whatever reason. And you showing up authentic might not be the best thing for you or anybody else in that room. And so I've always really kind of challenged people on that notion of going, I just want to swap out the word authentic for intentional. I would rather you be intentional than authentic. So you take how you're feeling, you take care of yourself, you acknowledge it, you put a plan in place to do whatever you need to do and then show up intentionally. So, I mean, I love your idea of being intentional. I think it's really important. And the way I think about it is that it's better to try to be responsible than to try to be authentic. Because sometimes, you know, being responsible means taking your role seriously. It means behaving in a way that's consistent with other people's expectations and in a way that allows them to play their roles also. Um, And sometimes to play our roles, we have to do things that feel totally unfamiliar. Um, I mean, the most, you know, the most obvious example that comes to me today comes from parenting, you know, which is that, you know, to be a good parent, you have to be careful what you show your children. As a parent, part of what you're trying to do is create a secure environment where they feel safe and they can thrive. And it doesn't mean that as a parent, you're not often upset or terrified or hurt by your kids or that you feel out of control of the situation. But to be a good parent, you have to control those emotions and your defensive and instinctive ways of responding to them. And I think it's the same at work, you know? So I I like the idea of thinking about trying to be responsible. It's more sort of socially connected to me. What I love about the word responsible is that it it creates a feeling of flexibility. Like if you mm-hmm. break down the word responsible, it's it's basically that you have the ability to respond. 
Like yeah. in, in any moment, you have the ability to be able to respond in a variety of different ways. And your role as a responsible adult human being, someone who has the ability to be able to respond, is to choose the most appropriate and effective way to respond in that moment for everybody who yeah. you are responsible yeah. for. Yeah. And, and I just love that. It's such, it's a word that, that denotes flexibility. I think that's true. And I think the other thing that it does for me is that it's a reminder that whenever we make choices about how to respond in difficult or challenging situations, we have to choose very carefully about the the behaviors that um, are designed to protect ourselves and the behaviors that are designed to do right by other people. And responsibility keeps you focused on, I think, on the other person. Let's take that and and tie a tie a string between that and acting with power because Great. they're, they're all such similar yes. similar ideas. You said I, I was watching a video and in that video you said people decide if you're competent or not in a hundred milliseconds. And now I feel like I mean I've spent years trying to convince people that people make up their mind about you within the first two minutes. There was a brilliant book that came out by Brandt and Pimvedic that was the three minute pitch, which is he's a Hollywood producer and he was like if you can't get them in three minutes. You've not got them at all. And then I, I heard a hundred milliseconds and I was like, oh God, like this news is just getting worse. In some ways it's worse. In some ways it's better. You know, what, what the research that I'm drawing on really looks at, um, what's called using thin slices of human behavior to form impressions of people. And what the research illuminates, I think, in such a powerful way is that our nonverbal communication registers and resonates way before the content of our verbal communication does. So people will, you know, read things off your body about your intentions toward them and about whether you are competent um, and and secure in your expertise just based on how you're standing, how you're sitting, how you're using your eyes, you know, whether you're still when you're speaking or moving and, um, and, you know, and even more subtle things, you know, things that related to our posture sometimes, which are things we often don't, don't control and don't think of as controllable, but yeah. So it really, it really illuminates, I think, the power of our body language and nonverbal communication. And one of the things that's super interesting about that, you know, independent of like the timing aspect is that people trust our body language more also because we, we, I think we assume it's harder to lie with your body, right? Everybody can lie with their words and we know that. And sometimes we hear people speak and we know that they're, you know, that they're reading from a script in their head, right? We kind of, we have a very, I think, powerful radar for detecting, you know, deception in verbal communication, but in nonverbal communication, we just take things at face value and we process that information at a very, in a very primitive part of our brain where it's not like, you know, you're aware like, oh, you know, she's standing this way and that makes me think X, Y, or Z. And I wonder if she did that on purpose. You know what I mean? The nonverbal stuff somehow just, we trust it more. And it, I mean, that's an amazing reminder for me just of how much information we, we process at any one point in time. You yeah. know, we think that we're just processing using our, you know, our usual senses, but actually at a subconscious level, we are processing incredible amounts of, of pieces of information that we don't even know that we're processing. And the way that it comes through for us is a sudden gut feel. 
Yes. I just have a gut feel. I don't like you. Yes. I have a gut feel. I can't trust you. I have a gut feel. Yes. You don't know what you're doing. And that gut feel we often dismiss because we think oh, it's not verifiable. I have no actual facts or evidence in front of me. But what's been happening is that your subconscious mind has processed thousands and thousands yeah. of pieces of data in as like a hundred milliseconds and come to a conclusion that it's feeding through to you as a gut feel. Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting that you mentioned that because I think we are often told, you know, not to trust our intuitions. But I think when it comes to things like, you know, whether you have a good or bad feeling about someone, often your body knows things before the rest of you does. And so I think it's important to treat it as like real information. It doesn't have to be the last word. You know what I mean? But you get to a certain point in your life and career where I know for most people and most people in my network, it's been right so many times and you've been wrong. Your brain has been wrong so many times <laughs> yeah. that you just get to this place of surrender where you go, okay, like I, I can't explain it, but the evidence is really clear. Most of the time my brain is trying to justify something or argue with something that my gut already knows. Yeah. And totally. you learn to go with it. Mm-hmm. And so again, the work that you do is about a new way of thinking about how to approach situations where you want to have impact. And for many of us, most of us, there are plenty of those situations in our lives where you approach it wanting to make a certain kind of impact with the group or individual that you're, that you're looking to influence. But what I love about what you do is it's not about, it's not about faking it. It's not, it's not the kind of, you know, fake it fake it until you make it. It's about accessing tools that you already have Mm -hmm. inside of you. So talk to me about that. Sure. I mean, I think the most important thing, if you think about, you know, maybe one of what differentiates my approach to this topic is that I'm very, I think context is very important. And like when people ask me all the time, like, you know, I have a job interview today, like how should I stand or how should I sit or should I, you know, how how should I carry myself? Um, They'll sort of ask me how to respond to a situation that's described in very general terms. And what I always say to them is that the answer to your question about how to show up depends on all the little details details that you haven't told me. Like, what is the context? Like, tell me who you're dealing with. And one of the most important aspects of context that I'm, that I think everyone needs to be really attuned to is the status relationships, status and power relationships that people have with the people that they're dealing with. So very, very important when you're thinking about things like, you know, how, how dominant should I try to be, or how friendly should I be, or should I, you know, be, should I start being respectful or should I start, you know, putting my foot down? And what I always say is that the most important question to ask yourself is, is what's the status of the person that you're dealing with? Because that dictates a lot. You know, there are these norms about what's appropriate in terms of how we behave in social hierarchy. So for example, if you're trying to, um, you know, establish rapport with someone who, who has more expertise or more power than you, my advice would be you should approach that situation first by trying to show your respect for that person independent of your own goals to be respected and to be admired. And maybe you're trying to get a job, but if you're trying to establish rapport with somebody who has more status than you, you have to show respect first. That's how they know they can trust you to follow norms of appropriateness and to not be a threat to them. So it depends on, you know, the way you want to respond to somebody depends on context. What's the person's, you know, status relationship to you, who has the power in the situation. And then the second key thing is what What's your objective? Like exactly what specifically, what kind of impression are you trying to make? Is it more important to you to be disarming 
given the circumstances, or is it more important to you to let someone know you're having the last word and this conversation is over? You know what I mean? So, so context is everything in my, in my point of view. And, and then it's just a question of once you're tuned into um, the situation you're dealing with, can you find ways to orient yourself in terms of your mindset to approach the situation in a way that's both both truthful, but also appropriate. So yeah, for me, it's never faking it. It's just being careful enough about the situation you're in to have, you know, to be able to respond um, naturally with awareness, as opposed to, you know, going into the same situation the same way every time. And that awareness of that you have choice, that you are, yeah. that you are going in from a position of choice. Um, and you've talked about, you know, the, when we look at the body language of power, and, you know, you said that most people prepare by focusing on what they want to say, but yeah. only 7% of the impression that we make of somebody is based on the actual words that they use. And the other, you know, the other 93 is, is physical, yeah. but looking at that body language of power, there are, you've talked about, there are two main body language that we have. We constantly have choice to mm-hmm. move between these two main frames of body language. Can you walk through both of those, both of those two choices? Sure. I mean, there are a bunch of different ways to think about it. One of the one of the easiest ways to keep it in mind for your listeners is that, you know, I think the goal that most of us have in most situations is to establish trust. So, so I think one of the one of the things that we all you know aspire to do in any influential situation is to create a situation where other people trust us. And there are two dimensions of trust that are affected very directly by how we use our bodies. So, when trying to decide if we sh- if I should trust you, one thing I'll be looking for is evidence that you're that you're competent, that you're capable, that you have the expertise that you that you're supposed to have. And the other dimension has to do with um, whether I can trust you to put my interests first. So I think of these as like the competence dimension and the character dimension. The first thing we have to think about is, you know, which of those, which of those dimensions is most important right this very minute, depending on who we're dealing with. And there are a lot of different ways to think about it. I can give you also sort of like general rules. I think the... Um, the um, you know there's there's a lot of uh, information in the management literature that suggests that really what we need to do to have influence is to first let other people know that we care about them. So Amy Cuddy has this idea about connect then lead. So her idea is that we should disarm people first, let them know that we care about them, and then try to demonstrate our competence. And in many situations that works very well, but there are situations where it's important to lead with authority and lead with expertise expertise and lead with competence. And one way to think about those types of situations um, in particular are crisis situations for people who are specifically for people who are trying to help a, a group or a team through a crisis situation. It's very important to um, let other people know that that you've got this and that you're in charge. And that that's a different way of showing up. So let's just let's dive into that that authoritative kind of stance that that the choice to show up in an authoritative yep. state, mm-hmm. and you call that playing high. Yes, which which I love, which works in in so many ways. But walk through what does what does an authoritative stance look like? How does sure, it feel? Absolutely. How do we do it? So there's, I mean, there are a lot of interesting nonverbal um, actions that are so easy for anyone to to experiment with and to master. So this is what I love about the nonverbal stuff. It's 
very simple in certain ways. So an authoritative way of showing up is to um, use your body in a way that suggests that you are um, willing to use force if necessary in a conflict. And in part, what that means is showing up physically expansive so that you're taking your full footprint. So it could be having your chest open is one way of thinking about it. It could be when you're standing, you know, having your weight evenly distributed on both legs, as opposed to like leaning on one hip, as many of us do. So using your body in a way that suggests physical strength is one way of showing up authoritative. Another way of showing up authoritative is to be relatively still. I'm actually not doing that right now. I'm noticing. So uh, for example, an authoritative way of behaving is to not be leaking energy um, in your movement. So it would be things like holding your head relatively still while you're speaking um, and using your hands in ways uh, for emphasis that are very controlled, but not using your hands in the ways many of us do by like, you know, gesturing all over the place and playing with our hair, all, all of those things that we do to leak energy, take away from our authoritativeness. So in part, it's being very still, very physically grounded and using your body in a way that shows, um, that shows strength. Direct eye contact is also authoritative. And especially in this Zoom era, it's important to think about speech since so many of these other things don't really carry in a, in a virtual environment. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that, how this, how this works in a virtual environment, because yeah. there's so little options there. Yes. I think we're still trying to figure that out. But what I would say I know is true for being authoritative in terms of speech is um, slowing down a little bit. So part of what it means to speak in an authoritative way is to take all the time you need to send your message. What happens often when we speak quickly is we're kind of subtly sending the message that we're not sure what we're saying is worth the time that we're taking. So we often coach people to slow down a little bit when they're um, when they're concerned specifically with being taken seriously and coming across authoritative. There are other speech things too. My the vocal coaches that I work with talk about articulating consonants hard as a way of speaking authoritatively, where when you soften your consonants or elongate your vowels, it's a more approachable um, and disarming way of coming across. So those are just some of the things. There's, there's one that, I, that I've got written down here that really resonated with me that you, ha- you didn't actually mention just there that I'd love yeah. to dive into, which was using short bullet type sentences, yeah. sh- com- short, complete sentences. And, and where that hit me is in the, in the speaking world, that's a tool that is used. You know, yes. you, especially when you're starting a presentation or closing a presentation, you have short, complete sentences designed for effect. And then, and this is the important part, then you stop talking. You, the pauses, those who have That's right. the gravity within themselves to be able to say, I'm going to stop pausing now. What I said was important enough that I'm going to give you room to digest it. That's right. And I'm going to hold my space while you do so. And when I've decided it's time, I'll start again. You know, that there's a, a gravity and authority that comes yes. with that. Absolutely. Not talking. Absolutely. I mean, pauses and getting comfortable with silence are very important for being authoritative. Um and, you know, acting with power and speaking with power in particular. But one of the things that you pointed out that I think is really important for people to keep in mind when thinking about any tactic, but this one in particular, is that 
What has impact often is the contrast between one way of behaving and another. You know, if you're authoritative all the time, let's say you're giving a speech and you spend 60 minutes in that very authoritative mode, it loses its meaning. It's just your, it's like, you know, it's just your, your one note. It's your one way of approaching everything. It would seem very robotic, I think. What's really powerful is, for example, for someone who is naturally very disarming, a little bit flighty, uh, very friendly, um, and, you know, someone who, who is, is, likes to free associate to, in a particular moment, change gears for emphasis, which I think is what you were talking about at like the beginning and the end of a speech. And this is true with all of those tactics. It's, it's a question of, you know, of using a behavior to have a specific impact in a specific moment. So authoritativeness for someone who's always very friendly. Um, an example would be like, if you're someone who smiles all the time, if you have an interaction and don't smile, it will have a huge effect. Like it really has meaning, right? If this person who's always friendly is suddenly not friendly, but someone who's always unfriendly, it kind of wears off at some point. It's like, okay, you know, this person always acts bossy and unfriendly and it doesn't have the same meaning anymore. It almost becomes like, you know, the washing machine that's on in the background. Eventually yes. you stop, like if it's, if it's constant, yes, yes. you stop hearing it. That's right. And the impact lives in the moment where you have the flexibility to change gears. Absolutely. And deliberately. Side, that's right. And the flip side is, you know, when leaders are told to show vulnerability, it's the same thing. It's, it's never, you know, not all the time. It's, you know, if you're someone who appears authoritative, in control, in charge, has a very command and control presence, you know, as a baseline, when you break that and show vulnerability, it's very, very powerful and has tremendous impact. And it's so memorable. And you know, you're seeing something real, you know, because it's not the natural go-to thing. So yeah, very important to think of it as like, you know, yes, there are choices and, and it's the contrasts that are meaningful. What I'm, I'm a big fan of flamenco. Love, uh-huh. I love flamenco. And I think one of the reasons that I love it as much as I do is if you arrive early at a flamenco, so you'll see kind of the dancers and the musicians and they'll be sitting around and they'll be relaxed and talking and laughing. And then when it starts something incredible happens where it starts and the dancer takes to the stage, particularly women actually take to Mm -hmm. the stage and they do this thing where they stand in the center of the stage and they ground down and their entire physiology changes, Mm -hmm. you know, like they a hundred percent occupy, like the gravity, it pulls you in the gravity of how they own that space. And if you you look at that as a metaphor for a minute, you know, even in their movements, we talk about short bullet sentences, but their movements are kind of short and jerky and, you know, everything about them has a sense of authority, a sense of gravity to it. Yeah. And they have this saying, I don't know if you've ever, ever heard of this, this is words in flamenco called duende, and there's no direct translation for it into English, but what happens is when the dancer takes to the stage, grounds down, goes silent and very still, the Spanish would watch them. And at one point they would say, ah, the duendes just arrived. Mm-hmm. And it's this moment when they embody, something comes into them and they embody the fullness yes. of themselves. Yes. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. We we describe it in the courses I teach as, as being dropped in. 
And we'll say sometimes, did you see them drop in? So like if I have two students who are reading a scene together, you know, they, they can be reading the lines, but they're, you know, they're kind of half there or they haven't really owned it. And then you can see when this happens, when it's like the, the artist and the art become one. I think, you know, Konstantin Stanislavski, who's an acting teacher, described that as an as having an unbroken line, an unbroken line between the actor and the character. It's like there's a you can't see anymore the distinction between the person who's dancing and the art that they're that they're creating. It just all becomes Mm. one. And I love that. I think the other thing you're describing that's super important for people who want to understand what it means to be authoritative in your action is that it's all about being in control. It's, it's about being in control of yourself, in total control of yourself, and uh, and in that way can, communicating that you're in control of your circumstances and those around you. So I think the way you were describing the dancers, I love that, is you know, that it's very much that sense of being totally self-possessed and in control of your body, in control of your movements. Nothing is happening by accident. No. And there's also this sense and what is so captivating is this sense of, I bring you my everything. Yeah. You know what? I bring you every single thing that I have learned, every single movement that I know, I bring you my everything and I will leave it here on Mm -hmm. this, on this stage for you. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, w- and then I will go and I will change states and I'll, you know, continue drinking and laughing with, with my friends over here. But for this moment, I am absolutely present and I give you my everything. I agree completely. I a hundred percent agree. And I think it's, you know, what's interesting about it. It's the state that all of us want to be in when we're trying to have influence that, you know, we're almost, we want to be lost in the in the action. We want to be lost in the moment and like not aware of ourselves, I think is a big part of it, you know? So I think it's one of the interesting things like in my approach to thinking about having influence and using power is this idea that um, you're so focused on what you're doing that you lose track of how you're doing it, how well you're doing it. And yeah. I think that's where that, that's where that state comes from. It's like you disappear. I've had the experience sometimes like when I'm teaching, if I'm, if I'm having a good teaching day where somebody will say, Oh my God, you know, could you just go back to that thing? You just said, I want to write it down. <laughs> and you can, and I, and I won't know what it was. Yes. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that's, that's the moment I think that we're all striving for, but it's a big yeah. part of what I talk about in the book is, you know, like the tactics for um, that actors all use. And I assume dancers too, for, for losing your conscious awareness of yourself. I think that's the key. And I just, I got something different then from what you said, I'd like a whole nother level on that, which is to lose consciousness of yourself is the opposite of being self-conscious. That's right. That's exactly right. And yeah. I've ne- never really driven, like drawn a through line between those two things before. Yeah. So, and there's, if you don't mind, I'm just going to touch on something you mentioned. Yeah, earlier. please. I hope I'm not getting ahead of you, but you talked no. about how, you know, about confidence. It's not that it's not your favorite approach necessarily to thinking about having influence and, and you know, as the thing that people need to work on and worry about. I think this is very much related to this idea of being self-conscious. So, so confidence is ultimately a self-conscious feeling. And it's something you can only work on by thinking about yourself and how you're feeling and trying to overcome your, 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 your lack of confidence and insecurity, which every single one of us has. And what's really, I think, helpful about what I've learned again, from working with actors is that it's that, that the key confidence, you can sort of put it to the side. The key is to, is to 
move your attention off yourself. That, that's what confidence looks like. It's you, you act with confidence and you speak with confidence when you're so focused on other people and what's happening that you don't have resources to, to think like, should I say that now? And what if it comes out wrong? And, you know, what if people disagree with me? It's like, you know, the best way to overcome all those barriers, all of us have them, is to learn to shift the focus of our attention onto, onto other people and onto the things that we're trying to do. And that, that's something I've learned, you know, from working with actors, they have these, these issues all the time. They get up and on stage in front of people and do things that feel very unfamiliar and sometimes very uncomfortable. And, and one of the basic, basic techniques is to, um, is to train yourself to be so focused on the person you're interacting with on the stage Mm. that there are no resources left for thinking about yourself and how you look and whether you're doing it right. You know, it's just, what am I getting off this other person? And what does my gut tell me about how I should respond? So it's the, it's almost a hundred percent state of contribution. Like yeah. I, I am in a hundred percent state of contribution. I give you the best that I have yeah. and I don't have resources to worry about anything else. Like a hundred percent right. of me is, in, is yeah. in a contribution mode for anyone that's listening, thinking, I don't think I remember them talking about confidence prior to this point. Um, this was actually a conversation that we had just yes. before going on air. No, not at all. And the reason we were having the conversation is I was, I was saying that your work, what I love about it is it doesn't focus on confidence. And I find this word confidence derails this notion of confidence, derails more people than it helps. Mm-hmm. You know, you should be more confident, which denotes that you should transform who you think that you are in a moment with no resources or tools. And this idea that confidence doesn't show up unless you show up, you know, you get confident by doing the thing That's hundred right. times. It's the result. It's not the ingredient. And this idea that we can't start until we feel confident, it just, it kills me. Yeah. It absolutely kills me. Yeah. And what better to have is some tools to step into either your authority or step into contribution or step into certainty. And that's what you provide with the work that you do. You provide the tools to be able to be at choice and make that decision, not wait for the fairy dust. You know, I always think of like the clouds opening and the the sun beams hit you and the angels start singing and someone says, you are, you are the chosen one. Now you may. That's right. Go forth, have confidence. You know, it just doesn't work that way. And I've worked with speakers and CEOs and for many years all around the world. And I've never once seen this moment where confidence suddenly arrives before you do. No, that's right. That's totally right. Yeah. And just, you know, just to elaborate again for something really practical, this is something that we do a lot in, in the coaching that I do. Um, and it's something that I actually use in situations where I feel insecure, feel myself becoming ungrounded, which, I mean, it, like, I think it's really important for your listeners to get that, like, everybody has those feelings of insecurity. Even when you're confident, you have those moments where you, you know, you're not sure you said the right thing, or you're not sure if you should interrupt now, you know, we all have those moments, but what, what we actually, um, what I've trained people to do and I've trained myself to do is literally like, just take, for example, being in a meeting where you haven't spoken and the conversation's going by and you feel like you should speak, but you're not sure how to break in and you feel anxious about whether you are going to say the right thing. And, you know, it just, it's just that terrible moment that so many of us have. Um, what I will advise people to do is when you feel yourself getting into that, like 
kind of self-conscious, you know, mode where we're getting in our own way is to literally use your eyes to train your eyes on someone else in the room. It doesn't matter who it is. And just to gaze at them with kind of curiosity and like a kind of almost like a clinical approach, like instead of worrying about how you're feeling, like just shift your eyes onto someone else and ask yourself quietly, I wonder how she's doing. Like, I wonder how she's doing. And then you can look at someone's face and we literally like in learning this practice, say to people, imagine you were going to paint the person focused on them that hard, you know, what colors would you need? Like what kind of brushes would you need? And how is the light hitting their face? And how would you make that show up in a painting? Like when you can get your eyes to be that engaged with someone else, your whole sense of being self-conscious disappears. It's like, you don't feel awkward at all anymore, simply because because you're not thinking about yourself. It's just a matter of getting your attention so focused on something else. And then the beauty of this approach is that if you really are paying careful attention to someone else, you can contribute by just checking in with them. It's so easy. It's like, I've been watching you for a while, you know, like, what are you thinking? You know what I mean? Or, and then it's, and then it's, then you're in the conversation and you've said something potentially helpful and, you know, it doesn't have to be like, you know, a stroke of genius. It's, it's just a way of getting, you know, I, I describe it as like moving off yourself, of like moving off yourself so that you can be fully present, like you were describing um, in this situation. I've heard that described, um, I think one time before, only one time before as finding your lighthouse, like pick a person. And the way that I heard it described is pick a person that's smiling. If you're stood in front yeah. of people and you're contributing, don't worry about the people that we tend to obsess about, which are the ones right. with the, you know, folded arms right. or the ones on their iPhones or, and trust me, whatever story you have about what's going on for them in that moment, it will not be right. Focus on the person who's there and smiling at you. Pick your lighthouse, talk to that lighthouse until you feel your physiology calm down, until yeah. you feel the cortisol go, until you feel the adrenaline leave. And then you can go back out and look at the rest of the room and, and you know, look past the guy with the iPhone, give him a little bit of attention. But but pick your lighthouse first and yeah, then go back that. to that lighthouse whenever you need fuel again. Yeah. I love that. You can do that. You know, I have just to build on this. It reminds me of another tactic that I've used um, and that I, that I recommend to people, which has to do with preparing for those moments before you go on. So one of the things, so one of the things that I noticed as I was like, just learning, you know, learning to teach and, and, you know, and getting comfortable with that is that I would obsess before going into a classroom about, you know, the frowny face that I remembered from the week before, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, did I, did I lose that person? Are they coming in angry today? Like, has any, you know, I would, I would worry. I would just feel the sense of worry and like, who am I going to let down? And at some point I realized, you know, this is not constructive. Like this is the moment where you want to be warming to your audience not going in ready for a fight, you know? So I started going through this practice of just giving myself two or three minutes to remember. It's like, remember the lighthouse. You know what I mean? Like, how about you just think about the students that came up to you afterwards and told you how much they loved the class or the student you remember from 10 years ago who told you, you know, something that made you feel good about what you're doing. Like just even in your imagination, not allowing your mind to go into that loop of like worrying about all the people who are out to get you. But just think about the reasons you're happy to be there, all the things that could go right, you know, all the possible um 
all your friends, all your supporters. It just allows you to go into the situation with a completely open heart and, you know, a sense of optimism that that will come through the minute you walk into the room. You know, like we were saying earlier, it's like you're not you're not seeing someone anxious or um you know, worried or hostile or tired come in, you're seeing someone come in who like is so happy to be there and can't wait to get started. So yeah, I love the lighthouse. And then you can imagine a lighthouse beforehand also, I think, which is, which is useful for me. I had a bit of it to talk about lighthouses very quickly. I had a, a light bulb moment about lighthouses. It's probably a few years ago now. And it was my moment where I suddenly realized that all of the stories that I have about the people who are sat there, you know, in anything, whether it's a pitch or a presentation that are sat there with their arms crossed, yeah. frowning, all of my stories about those human beings were probably not true. And no. it was, I gave this full day, a full day workshop. I think it was on storytelling, full day workshop. And there was this guy who was at the front. It was for a group of engineers, guy at the front. He was a big guy. His presence was pretty powerful. And he sat there with his arms crossed with this frown on his face and said pretty much nothing the whole day. He just stared at me frowning and I was, you know, finding my lighthouse and talking and, and, you know, trying not to tell myself a story, but blatantly telling myself a story about this guy. Anyway, at the end, I'm there and I'm packing up my cables and I'm getting ready to go. Everybody's gone. And he walks, he walked over and he just stood there and waited for me to see him. And, and then he looked at me and he said, that was amazing. I've, I've just, I've had the best day. <laughs> and I looked at him and what I felt like saying was, could you, could you tell your face? That would have been <laughs> really helpful for me. But I just had this moment where I, I it suddenly sunk in that I have no idea. Right. what's going on in anybody else's brain. And if I can imagine a story out of the billions of things that might be going on, if I pick one, the odds of that being right yeah. are so small. I just want to, I want to move us into, into a, a different mode now, because you know, the big part of this conversation for me and, and what I love about your work is this is about flexibility. This is about choice and flexibility. And sometimes it's appropriate to up your authority and other mm -hmm. times it's appropriate to dial it back and be more approachable. So mm -hmm. let's talk about the approachable stance. Yeah. How do we dial that up? Yeah, definitely. So I think about, I mean, I, I think that's a great language for it. And I also describe it as having like, you can have like a command and control mode and a respect and connect mode. And I think when you say it that way, everybody can sort of relate to how they're both useful, but yeah, the respect and connect. So how do you do that? So I think um, this is really interesting. The, the authoritativeness is something that is relatively easy to change from the outside in, in all the ways that we just described. So the way you hold your head, the way you stand, the way you speak. These are cues that convey dominance or authoritativeness really across species um, in many cases. And with the approachability, it's a little bit different. It's harder to um, act your way into having people trust that you have good intentions toward them. It's like you, instead of, instead of change from the outside in with approachability, you have to change from the inside out. And part of it really has to just do with making sure that um, a little bit like we were just describing with the lighthouse, that whatever's going on in your head is reflects positively on the people that you're dealing with. So um an example would be um, we sometimes use a, tech, a, a technique called a mantra, 
which is like something you can say to yourself silently in a situation to make sure that you're in the right headspace. And for example, a great mantra for going into a speaking uh, engagement, just like the ones we were just talking about, is to say to yourself quietly before you go in, uh, I'm glad to be here and I know what I know just sort of gets you in the right frame of mind. So something that that you can work on in terms of being approachable is to make sure that in your mind, you are thinking positive things about the people that you're dealing with, like wondering how they're doing or thinking about um, what you like about them or, um, you know, anything you can do to make sure that what your head is full of is something very friendly toward the other person. I think that's probably the most important thing. Then there's the aspect of it that has to do with really, especially for people who are naturally more authoritative um, with their body language, uh, learning how to tone things down a little bit so that they're not so physically intimidating. And I had a great example of, I work on this topic in particular a lot with men. So I had an interesting case recently of a guy who was a student in one of my classes who was, you know, from the military. He was, you know, physically really strong and big and just naturally kind of intimidating, very intense guy also. And he was worried about um, the fact that there were women on his team who were intimidated by him and didn't like him very much because they made him feel anxious around them. So we were practicing how he could come into a room and sit down to talk to them in a way that didn't wasn't overpowering. And what was interesting with this was that we discovered that what was really helpful was, you know, if you think of like the authoritative thing as being kind of expansive and like directly in front of someone in their in their space. What we did with him is we had him sit down next to the woman as opposed to across from her. Um, and fold in on himself a little bit. So sit with his knees together and lean forward a little bit and keep his hands between his knees. So there were two things going on there. One was he made himself physically smaller, you know, physically disarming, like like less threatening, right? Like he wasn't kind of coming at you physically. And then the other part was he just literally made his um, his his footprint smaller and was not facing off so directly. So a big thing about being approachable is conveying with your body language that you're not threatening. And sometimes it has to do with, you know, approaching someone indirectly physically as opposed to in a direct way or looking away first with your eyes as opposed to holding eye contact longer or, you know, doing the things that we all naturally do that uh, convey, you know, our discomfort or insecurity, like touching our hair or adjusting our clothes or um, shifting in our seat. All of those things are actions that make us less scary um, and make make it easier for others to connect to us on kind of a human level. What about walking? It's it's something that I've been noticing recently that if you take someone for a walk, a walk and talk, that mm-hmm. especially somebody who might be, you know, lower down than you hierarchy wise, who might be a little bit intimidated or feel a little bit nervous speaking up. If you can walk and talk with, I don't know why, but if you can walk and talk with them, mm-hmm. maybe it's the side by side and the natural motion. It's incredible what comes out. Uh, if you just I believe walk. that's right. Yeah, I think it is the side by side thing. It is. There's something um, I, I notice it also. Again, this is like a, a moment of, of driving in the car with your kids. Like parents will say all the time that they hear the, their kids disclose the most information in the car 
the kids are behind the parents and they're not looking at one another eye to eye. So somehow it's less threatening to just like talk and say whatever, because you don't have that like image of your parents' judgment um, or of anyone's judgment, really. Right. When you're when you're walking next to someone, it's easier to not feel worried about the um, the, you know, the, the possibility that you might offend someone or that they're judging you, all of those things that make it hard to talk with people who have more power and status than we do. So I think your intuition about that is right. I think the side by thing, side thing is, is super important. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a great intuition. You touched on the the guy that you were working with and, yeah. you know, I try really hard with this podcast to, to stay away from gender stereotypes. I feel like there are, there are so many gender stereotypes when it comes yeah. to influence and power. And, and I do my best to keep it out of that zone. However, I think when it comes to this particular topic, the conversation around how it impacts women almost has to be had yeah. and it has to be had not to diminish or exclude men from, you know, you wouldn't understand and this doesn't involve you, but in order to empower both women and men to take care of the women that they either lead or mentor or manage or are trying to raise. Mm-hmm. And so I, I frame this as an inclusive conversation because I think it's a really important one. So let's talk about that, the, the, yeah. the role of women in power, the, the disadvantage of being a woman in power when it comes to how power is perceived yeah. Yeah. And there's so many, so many important questions here. I think one of the most important things to just acknowledge off the bat is that the reason there are gender issues in, in the context of influence and power is that um, men have more power and status than women in almost every context I can think of. It's just kind of a truth about social life that we just need to accept. And, you know, part of it probably comes from, you know, the power aspect comes from physical size, of course, but then there's the fact that men tend to have more economic power than women. And just because of how society is, it's a little bit patriarchal. People tend to um, convey more, you know, status and expertise more easily to men and to women. And that's just part of the world that we live in. So yeah, it does put women at a disadvantage in, in a number of different ways. Um, and it's hard to even know, you know, which of these, which of these topics to tackle first. I think, you know, we were just talking earlier about things that men can do to make it easier for women to speak up is would be one way of thinking it, right? Just acknowledging if there is a power and status difference, and part what that means is that it's uh, easier for men to f- to feel comfortable speaking up or speaking out in a situation than women. Women are socialized to listen and to defer to others and to put other people's interests first. So it often takes extra work mm. to create a space where women feel comfortable speaking up. You you said something brilliant when I was watching you talk on this, and you said you know women are socialized from a very yeah. young age to use the body language of playing low. And we were just talking about you know authoritative is to play high and approachable is to play low. And from a young age, you know we societally, and I think that that is definitely changing now, socialize young girls to use their body to play low. Yeah, to definitely defer, to please, to be smiling. Yeah. Well, and it's I think the most important thing for women, if you look at the research that's very popular. Now, I think most people know about it on backlash and the idea that, you know, aggressive or very competent women are unlikable. Part of what what we've learned is that the most important thing for a woman to establish rapport is to be non-threatening. Mm. 
as part of the gender role. So we've learned all that body language and all the tricks of being, you know, smiling all the time would be example, would be an example and um, doing everything we can do to make sure that others aren't uncomfortable. That's part of what we're socialized to do. So yeah, it's, it is a natural go-to repertoire for women. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's sort of like we were talking about earlier. Ideally for everyone, you want to be able to use all of these approaches to having influence, but, you know, disarming other people and making others comfortable is actually very powerful, (laughs) right? Those of us who have relied on it kind of understand that at some level. It's like, you know, it's hard to, like we were saying at the beginning, it's hard to have influence if someone doesn't trust you. Mm. And the whole point of that, right, the whole point of that, of playing low is to let people know that you respect them, which creates the space for you to assert yourself and to criticize them, right? You, you, in, a, in a safe relationship where the where the other person doesn't feel threatened, it's much easier to have that type of influence than in a relationship where people feel like you're trying to win a status contest with them all the time. And I think that's a really important point to make there. And I just, I got that at a different level when you were talking that this this role or these skills that we develop, particularly as young girls, to make other people feel comfortable, to include, to be inclusive, to build community, to to track multiple people. How is everybody? What's going on? Yeah, it's perceived often as a weakness. Mm-hmm. And the incredible strength of it, you know, the the beauty of it when it comes to energetically tying together a group, when it comes to diffusing a situation, when it comes to solving a, a crisis, when it comes mm-hmm. to bringing somebody who's in a heightened state down enough so that a, a solution can be found. And I even think about, you know, my husband had this ongoing kind of argument and we've, you know, we've been together so long now that it doesn't have any energy to it anymore, but it used to in the beginning. So we were dating because we would go out and he would meet my friends and someone would say to him, you know, what do you, what do you like wanting to get to know him? What do you do? And he'd be, he'd just say, I'm a designer. And that would be the end of that. (laughs) And we'd go home (laughs) and we'd go home and I'd be like, did you, did you not think about like expanding that? Maybe asking them what they do. Like, and he's a beautifully caring human being, but he doesn't have that same innate driver that I have to make somebody else feel comfortable. That's right. Include them in the conversation. So I think that it's important to acknowledge the strength there. And as with every strength, there comes a weakness. Talk, talk about Heidi Rosen, the Stanford study, because this just fascinated. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, let's see if I can remember this one. So yeah, I mean, I think basically what, you know, there was an experiment that was done by one of my colleagues a number of years ago where he, um, he, there was a case that he used about this woman, Heidi Roizen, who's a, who's a real person. She's a, you know, fantastically successful entrepreneur and venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. And um, there was a, there was a case about her and her influence tactics and how she's built her network. And, you know, he would, he would give it to his students to read. And he was always shocked at how much people disliked her, you know, because to him, he thought she was like a hero, you know, she's like incredibly effective and she's doing a great job of, you know, creating a context where she has so much influence and she has so much power. And he suspected that they might be having this negative reaction to her because she was a woman and she was not supposed to be, um, 
ambitious or, you know, strategic in her behavior. There was a sense, there's a sense, you know, that women are not, are just supposed to look out for other people. They're never supposed to do anything to advance their own interests and that she was somehow being punished for that. So he did an experiment where he just changed the name of the protagonist in the case to Howard and gave the same case to, you know, half of his students. And of course, when it was Howard, they, the students loved this guy. They said he was like a genius and he was so competent. He was so, you know, someone they really emulated and wanted to be like. And, you know, the, the, the point is just to say that for women, you know, there is this expectation that we're supposed to, um, to always put other people first, to not be ambitious, to not think about our own interests, to never be strategic. And that when we behave in those ways, um, you know, it, it's uh, people don't like it. They have. So it's like, you know, it's almost like that gut level thing where you can you can admire a very competent woman at work. But you sometimes there's some part of you in your gut that doesn't really like the person. And and the the the, the uh, demonstration is basically that, you know, it, this is kind of how it works for women, that because we're expected to just be sweet and nurturing and caring People don't like it when we when we act another way. But I wanted to tell you something interesting about that, too, which is that, you know, that finding and and just the general idea that women are punished for being authoritative, that that's been qualified in the research recently. So I wanted to let you know about this. And it goes back to what I've been talking about in terms of how body language is so important and the idea of, you know, using your body to convey authoritativeness. So there was a paper that came out just a few years ago published by some of my colleagues at Stanford that looked at, you know, comparing how men and women were perceived when they were verbally assertive, like made demands or criticized someone or argued with someone verbally versus using nonverbal dominance tactics like staring someone down or, you know, standing closer to them as a way of, you know, kind of being more dominant and more authoritative. And what the study showed is that that women are disliked for for verbal assertiveness, but you don't see the same difference in the nonverbal domain. So somehow women being authoritative just physically doesn't register in the same way, same way and doesn't provoke the same level of resistance as when a woman is verbally assertive or aggressive. And I think that's super interesting and important. That's, that is really important. And for me, tell me if I'm wrong, but the, the reason I, I feel that's important is because my next question for you is going to be about getting resourceful. All right. Cool. You know, this is a fact. These things are facts. How as women and any human being who mentors, manages, or loves with the women in their lives, what can they do? What guidance can we give? What tools can we use? And what it feels like you're saying there is that your body language is the key here. Yeah. Absolutely. Using your body language conveys an authority that is as impactful, but doesn't have as many negative consequences. That's right. I think that's right. And I think what we haven't really absorbed yet kind of in the discourse about these subjects is that it is possible to be authoritative and strong and friendly and compassionate at the same time. It is possible to do those things. You know, it's possible to show up. I'm trying to think of an example. It's possible to show up in a way that's physically very formidable and also incredibly friendly. And um, if you think about it from a nonverbal point of view, it seems easier than trying to do those things verbally where, you know, you it's hard, for example, to be to be a supervisor and be critical while being friendly at the same time. But you can 
let people know you're in charge and encourage them to do what you want them to with your body and be friendly about it at the same time. Be warm and friendly about it at the same time. I'm just thinking in terms of lived experience with that. I really struggled at the beginning of my career. I started a co-founded a talent management agency. And part of the role was to manage these at that time, predominantly male, very powerful human beings, you know, CEOs of banks, authors, people who got up on stages and taught communication and negotiation skills. And there was me, 24 year old young woman expecting to, you know, expected to manage the business and, and sometimes behavior of, of these individuals. And at first, what I tried to do was appease and, and, and you know, become more friendly. And, and that had very little authority to it. Mm-hmm. And then what I moved into is what I called, you know, out, I call out doofing. Okay. Yeah. We're going to show up. You're full of testosterone. Let me be the same. Yeah. And I'd walk away from those conversations and the person I'd been talking to, it, all of them, incredible people would say that was a great conversation. And I'd walk away mm-hmm. just feeling exhausted, diminished, and just as if I'd a train wreck of a human being, because it wasn't a natural state for Mm me. And so I spent many years trying to figure out how I could hold myself with gravity and authority and to be taken as seriously as I needed to be taken in that role, Mm -hmm. while at the same time, not trying to out testosterone, testosterone, or not trying to be in this aggressive posture that just it wasn't natural to me and I found it just drained me. Yeah. And a lot of it came down for me and I'm really interested in how the, the kind of the science backs this up. It came down to that, that thing again around silences. You know, if you mm-hmm. hold yourself physically That's with right. gravity, sit up straight, chin up, maintain eye contact and just stop talking. That's right. Stop smiling, not in a negative way, but listen with curiosity, talk with certainty and then stop talking. Yep. And I always liken it to, liken it to Oprah. You know, nobody would look at Oprah and say, oh, she's very confident. Yeah. Nobody would. They would say, you know, that woman has gravity. Yeah. To her. And that was what I was trying to move myself towards. And it was a really, really conscious effort and way more, you know, way more failures than wins. But it was the silence part. Yeah. The learning just to own your silence. Yeah. I think that's fabulous. And that's exactly what I was going to say. It's so interesting, you know, um, for, and it, you know, it, it's important, like I said earlier, it's important to recognize that, you know, in many cases, men and women, if you just think about what's most comfortable and most natural and what your superpower is, we're not starting from the same place. You know, women have this superpower of being disarming and men have a superpower often of being intimidating. And then we have to develop the other side. And part of, I think one way for women to think about the challenge you're describing, which I think many of us face in life, Um, as we're, you know, sort of moving up in organizations, but also just aging is, you know, for women often, it's just a matter of, of turning off the natural instinct to please. You don't actually have to fight. You don't have to meet an aggressive person where they are. It's just a, a, a matter of not being so influenced by it, not being so rattled by it, not feeling like you need to argue back just in the way you're describing, you know, it's like just sitting and listening without reacting, um, you know, or letting something happen and not doing something to make it easier for other people. All of those are ways of owning your authority given where you started, you know? So I think that's exactly right. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be winning through aggression, Um, But, you know, for a person who has status and power, 
um, the stakes, you know, the stakes aren't that high, right? Like you, you don't have to be rattled by someone who's approaching you in an aggressive way. You can just let it happen. And, and the fact that you're not affected by it gives you status and power. I think in exactly the way you just described. So yeah, I think the silence is great. I think learning to turn off the smile as a way of reacting to something negative, something that's landed wrong, you know, someone else's attempt to put you down, just not being friendly, just not smiling can be a very, very powerful reaction, you know? And the irony there is by deciding not to smile and deciding not to do what you can perceive to be friendly. Yeah. Actually, the other person doesn't perceive it as being unfriendly. This is not an attempt to be unfriendly. What the other person perceives is a human being who is listening, curious, taking themselves and you seriously. That's right. That's right. And that's so ironic because it doesn't feel that way when you're doing it. I think that's right. But I think that's, it's in part how we earn respect. You know, it's, it's like we weren't rattled by something. We didn't get hooked by something emotionally. We didn't respond in a way that was reactive. Um, Mm. You could think of it almost as like a maturity, you know, that she's a, she's a woman who can handle what comes her way. And um, yeah, it's absolutely a source of, of status and gravitas. Absolutely. Now, very quickly before I let you go, I don't know if this is possible to cover quickly. It feels like a can of worms, but it must have been a fascinating few years for you, these recent few years with, you know, watching and just removing judgment, any kind of a, a partisan ideas, yeah. just watching the ascension of Trump and how he he handles himself from a power perspective because he's such a unique individual yeah. when it comes to how he wields his power and the choices he makes around it. Yeah. <laughs> Without opening the can of worms too far, <laughs> What you sitting back as someone who studies power, what have, what have been your main observations? Sure. There are two simple things I think that are really important for people to get. The first one is that I think, you know, he, he is, you know, on the, the world stage, the most pure example of a dominant actor, like just someone who uses the body language of dominance. I've never seen anything like it. Like it's not tempered at all. It's just pure. You know, if you look at, you know, the, the way he responds to things, even if his tweets are all in capital letters, you know, they're all those, you know, kind of short staccato sentences. He, um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time watching the debates in the first election and noticed that, you know, I don't know how closely you watch this, but like the other candidates really couldn't manage him in the debates. And people were so astounded by it because it wasn't like he was winning arguments based on logic. There was something about his, his level of dominance that people didn't know how to, it's like you, you don't want to get into it with him because everything he does suggests that there's no line he won't cross. And that's not true for the rest of us. So people just back off. That's how dominance works, actually. So, I mean, I think he is, it's, it's, if you want to understand, you know, why bullying and, and dominance have the effects that they do, he's a great example of just noticing that people don't know how to counteract it because, 
you, you literally don't know what it would lead to. You know, if you if you were to try to use his tactics against him, you um, you might imagine you'd end up wrestling on the floor in a presidential debate. Like you just don't know where it's going to stop, right? So, so I think you you really can see how dominance works. I think the other thing to recognize, and this is just true, not just with the United States, but this is all around the world, is that you know in the last decade or so. The, there has been a, a rise in the number of really authoritative and autocratic leaders all around the world. So if you compare the success of like dominant, physically aggressive leaders with leaders who are elected based more on respect and admiration, what you're seeing around the world is that the dominant actors have an advantage right now. And the reason for that is because the in times of crisis, economic crisis in particular, but in times of crisis, when citizens feel at their most helpless, they crave a very authoritative leader. There's a sense of security in it. And I think, you know, what we imagine when we see these people is, you know, and is, is, and we elect them is that they're going to use that dominance to protect us. But often what ends up happening is it gets turned against us. We don't really see that coming. But there is research that shows that the in times of crisis and economic uncertainty, both in politics and in organizations, people prefer more autocratic leaders because it gives them a sense of, of security and that someone is... Um, you know, is in charge in that very, uh, in that very forceful way. So it's something to watch out for. It's happening all around the world. And you were living in right now, especially in unprecedented times. Um, there is a real craving for dominance and authoritativeness in leaders in general, but it's really heightened under these, under these very chaotic times. It's going to be interesting. I think obviously you know, the election's very fresh in everybody's mind, but it's going to be interesting to watch how that plays out in terms of what is birthed during that time? You know, you've, you've got, you've got this particular kind of dominance that, as you said, was obviously wanted and Mm -hmm. and needed, Mm -hmm. (laughs) needed depending on, on where you sit with it. But what that tends to create is another force that comes along that rises that can meet that differently. And I'm, I I can't think what that would be, but I'm going to be really interested to see what that, what that turns out. Yeah. I mean, you know, it is fascinating, right? It's like, I don't think we really know either, but what I think is really interesting, like in the United States is if you look at what ended up happening with like, you know, Biden's approach, I was just looking at his, you know, his like acceptance speech, if you want to call it that his message is so simple. He's just trying to be the antidote to this Mm. dominance by being 100% compassion and empathy. It's like the strength and compassion, like the authoritativeness and the approachableness. It's like, he's just trying to offer like a relief from what feels to some people, I think now like too much dominance, like, you know, not enough compassion, not enough understanding, not enough meeting people on a human level, not enough reaching out to, you know, foreign allies in a way that's connected and respected as opposed to command and control. So that's been interesting for me to watch is just how it was such a simple campaign in that way. You know what I mean? It's just really, that's been the message. It's just been compassion and caring um, as the antidote to this really pure example of dominance. And it's almost like a, almost like a pendulum, you know, it's pulled too far in one direction. The, the powerful stance at that point, when you let go, is it, is it needs to come right back 
yeah. the other way. Yeah. All right. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I'm just going to finish by asking you one, one last thing. And that is sure. for anybody who's, who's got to wake up tomorrow morning, whenever you're listening to this and you know that there's a moment either coming or needed when you need to stand up and communicate with impact, where you need to show up with impact, what would be your one piece of advice? If they're just going to focus and remember one thing, what would it be? The most important thing I would say is that no matter who you are, what role you're playing, what stage you're standing on, the most important person in the scene is never you. Love that. Thank you so much for your time and your work and the questions that you're asking out there in the world, because they are increasingly more important questions as time goes on. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, if you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website juliemasters.com pop in your email address it is free we will not spam you but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work it's called the influencer code it's not long but it is full of value so download it keep it share it juice it for all it is worth I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.